take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ablett. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50, bounces in front of Burns, Burns magnificently, this deserves a goal, and he's got it, what a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert, half-half ball, 50-50, Lucani brilliant, what a goal this will be, magic! Can't break free of the tackle, and Rook rolls it along the line, oh. that is amazing! Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover, and Ablett, the little genius, drives it home. Chapman can run in and finish the job. of Kidinia Park, it's the Cat's Whiskers. Thanks for joining us on the Cat's Whiskers for another week. I'm Wes Cusworth. We continue to look back on the players, officials and events from the Geelong Football Club's past, even occasionally deviating off the straight path as we did last week in talking with footy book author Will Westerman about Fitzroy's 1996 merger. This week, we'll speak with footy recruiter John Peake as he helps us understand what clubs are looking for in the modern-day player and why some are seemingly outstanding players that are overlooked despite exhibiting match-winning qualities. I can assure you it will be a great program. It's great to have you listening, whether you're hearing us through a podcast platform or on Sport FM 91.3 in Perth. Let's meet this week's panel. Anthony Pekovic, I've got to start by asking you, are you glad you didn't have to pay to watch the Cats and the Pies last week? Well, yes, it wouldn't have been a great value for money. Look, Geelong and Collingwood seem to produce these games from time to time. There's a, a long list of them under the coaching of Chris Scott v uh, Nathan Buckley. It's like a game of chess taking place. And if you've ever watched a game of chess, it's not terribly exciting. And that's what we had on Saturday. Full credit to the AFL for putting on football, full credit for the players giving it their best shot, but something really was amiss on Saturday. So much so, I uh, got the wish washing in off the line, I unpacked the dishwasher, I returned to the TV to find the ball doing exactly what it was when I'd left. It was like watching an old episode of Days of Our Lives and not returning to it for six months, knowing full well that things would be pretty much the same when you got back to it. <laughs> Uh, Mark Browning joins us for a second week. And once again, we find AFL games played in Victoria without crowds. How impactful is that on the quality of the contests that we're watching? Uh, hi, Wes. Yeah, uh, look, I found it hard to view uh, the games w- without crowds and, you know, compare the Geelong Collingwood game and how lacking in any semblance of entertainment to the Essendon West Coast game and the Carlton Swans game. They were better games of football, but also it was helped by the fact that both those games had um, involved crowds and decent-sized crowds. And I think it's just re-emphasised again that for the joy of sport, of any sport, you need the buzz of a crowd. They're part of the event. And uh, welcome also to Mark Brunger. And it begs the question, Mark, I know that you have a match day role down there at GMHBA Stadium. You'd be pretty saddened if, in fact, that we don't see any further football there. Is that um, in any sort of doubt, do you think, moving forward? Well, in the short term, uh, good evening, uh, everyone. And uh, I suppose in the short term, the answer is we don't really know because at the moment in this lockdown in Victoria, of course, as we're uh, producing the show this week, we're not sure what happens after Thursday. Um, So Victoria could be in lockdown for, for a little bit longer. So that may, in fact, force the Geelong Football Club to have to flee Victoria. Um, to be able to play games. So I suppose the short-term answer is that 
Um, we may be starved of footy here in Geelong for uh, you know for maybe a, a month or uh, you know six six weeks, let's say, um, before we might be able to see the cats uh, at home. And I suppose that has ramifications too in terms of stadium capacity and, and issues that have only just recently been resolved, as as Anthony will attest to, members being actually allowed to go back into their proper seats at GMHBA Stadium. So it's a massive problem. Um, and I think uh, Gillan McLaughlin and uh, Steve Hocking are going to have a, a lot more sleepless nights before uh, before this little COVID burst is over. But um, I just hope for everyone's sake that, that we do actually see the, uh, the blue and white hoops back at uh, GMHBA Stadium this year. Yes, let's hope so. Uh, I know you're in a privileged seat there, Mark Runger, but Mark Browning and Anthony Petkovic down there amongst the punters trying to make their way through to their seats. It's uh, no easy feat, as the boys have attested in previous programs. Well, coming up, as promised, is footy recruiter John Peake. He's got a most interesting story to tell of 25 years in the game of recruiting. Welcome back to the Cats Whiskers. This week's guest is a much-travelled football devotee who has spent decades endeavouring to unearth our nation's most talented players. An experienced talent scout and football recruiter, John Peake has written a paper entitled The Four Pillars of Recruiting, and we hope we can learn a bit more about the caper by exploring the key issues. John, we eagerly look forward to you sharing your footy passion with us and our listeners. Welcome to the Cats Whiskers. Oh, thanks, Wes. It was a privilege to be asked, and it's a bit of a highlight to be on, so thank you. John, I'm interested to know, how does one get involved in recruiting in the first place? What what sort of steps took place that, that got you involved in it? Yeah, well, Mark, um, first of all, I was only a very average footballer. And uh, so when I retired, I, I couldn't coach or anything like that. And uh, the Paran Football Club actually had an ab- uh, advertisement about recruiting um, part-time recruiters, which I um, applied for and was fortunate enough they appointed me. It was just before the under-19s uh, were abandoned, disbanded. And so I had this idea, I'll go around to all the under-19 clubs and look at them because there'll be a lot of players without homes. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to uh, get a few players to go to Paran. Um, Ross Thornton was the coach originally and then uh, Brian Taylor. And through that, then because the uh, under-19s were disbanded, uh, a lot of clubs were looking for recruiters. And so I, once again, put a document together of the Anthony Rockers and Mark McCurries and sent them off to, uh, it was Carlton, Melbourne and Essendon. And I uh, was fortunate enough to get a job with Essendon uh, part-time uh, with Noel Judkins. So that was in 1992. That's how that happened. As we know, Noel Judkins is a great name when it comes to, to recruiting over the years. He's uh, been an absolute uh, champion at it, uh, John. Uh, tell us about some of the uh, the players in the early years that you, you may have spotted for the Dons that uh, that uh, are now household names potentially. Oh, well, uh, <laughs> once I should point out it was very much a team effort and I was very much a minor player, but it's your Blake Carousellas, uh during that time, Scott Lucas, um, I think Matthew Lloyd, <laughs> everyone saw him. Um, Justin Blumfield was one that was later at the draft that Noel really pushed and uh, went to Canberra one day to have a look at him. So that, it was along that era um, that uh, came that really Chris Heffernan, um, they're the main ones that I can think of, but it was very much um, mark a listen and learn for me um, and uh, try to pick up little bits along the way. But uh, Noel was very giving in that um, he sent me, you know, the WA in South Australia. So that was a great opportunity to learn. Um, so, yeah, I've been forever appreciative. Yeah, John, um, Stephen Wells, of course, is... Uh a guru in Geelong and a, a legend of the recruiting game. Uh, you've had some association with him. Um, is there a secret to this or is there a gift to it? Or is it you've got your guidelines, I know, and I, I found them very interesting. But yeah. what, uh, what's the magic? Is there any magic to it? Um, no, I don't think there's any magic. I, I suppose the way I'd answer that question... Um, when I first started at Essen, it was all about pace. 
and they was actually on the um, match committee. Uh, if you remember the uh, slogan "Speed Kills," and they had that, and and Essendon were fortunate enough to win the flag in '93, which they felt they were faster than Carlton. Um, when I went to Geelong, the next stage for me with Wellesley, Wellesley was um, very strong on the footballer. And so at that time, there was two players that come to mind, Darren Milburn and Jason Snell. Now, unfortunately, Jason got a bad injury because I think he would have had quite a solid career. Now, both those players, when I was at Essendon, were considered too slow. And I saw through Wellesley's belief in a footballer that it wasn't just all about pace. And the next stage was the one that really um, got me if you want to think that um, the magic was Cameron Ling. Um, Wellesley was very strong on him, and he's a footballer. And I hope Cameron's not listening to us, but he's, he's fairly slow, <laughs> but he, uh, he was a footballer. So, to, so the magic to me was um, learning that, yes, pace is, is a great attribute to have, and if you can get a footballer with pace, you, you could have something special. But the basics of it was a footballer. So I don't know if that's magic. Um, it was uh, what I learned along the way. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I believe in. John, I imagine that uh, for the uninitiated, the, the realities of the recruiter is that where everybody is attracted to the main games, the AFL games, the big yep. crowds, that sort of thing, you're actually going in the opposite direction. Take us through the actual practicalities of being a recruiter and going to the far-flung reaches of our great nation. <laughs> and big thing. Yeah, look, well, first of all, you've got to have a different love of it. So I suppose that helped ask the, answer the previous question. Definite love. Um, yeah, you will, um, depending on where the talent is, you could be going to WA for the weekend and that's uh, leaving on a Friday afternoon and, and being there Saturday, Sunday and sometimes even catching the midnight horror back. Uh, Adelaide the same at the weekends. If, if in Melbourne you could be out of Craigieburn, at uh, probably about nine o'clock and you're going to watch three games in a row in the freezing cold. So it's it's very much you're out in the elements. Um, what's transpired a little bit since then, all games are all uh, taped, so you can get them on video, but it's, it's, a, it's a heap of watching football. It's a heap of discussing with um, your fellow recruiters what you think, weaknesses, and uh, building a bit of a a profile on each player. So it's a lot of sitting around on your backside, basically. Um, so it's not a fitness sport or job. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a hell of a lot of time. A lot. Sitting in grandstands, um, sometimes not even a grandstand in your car if you're going up and seeing Max Rook um, and getting it, uh, getting all fogged up and it's raining or whatever. So it, you're, you're very much a victim for the elements. So it's, it's a, a heap of just sitting and watching. I'm fascinated with the, the, the draft day itself or night, whichever they have. It seems to have grown more and more spectacular yeah, yeah. over the years. I'm sure fireworks will come up next and <laughs> Scottish marching bands will come through playing bagpipes. But who rules the roost at draft day? Is it the recruiters or is it the coach or does that vary from club to club? Vary from club to club. Um, I was very fortunate in my time... Uh, the coaches didn't have a lot to say. Um, having said that, at Geelong, Mark Thompson had a lot of interest in it and he was a bit like the Senate, if that's the way to put it. Uh, he, if uh, Wellesley sh- showed him a few players, he would, he would rank them. Um, in, he'd only mainly see them in vision and what he thought and questions he had. Uh, so... It is the recruiting manager most times that I've seen, but I know of stories where coaches have overruled the recruiter. And a lot of times that when it comes down to those later picks and on the norm, a coach probably wants to take a already proven player that might be delisted from another club and thinking, well, if we've got pick 50, why take a kid? You know, so that's where the, the debates can happen. But it's it's very much, I also found a trend was if a club had a very good year, the coaches tended to not take much interest in recruiting, but if they had a bad year, uh, they might have a bit more interest. But 
in fairness to the coaches, during my time, they mainly left it to the recruiting, yeah. That's a, a great lead into to my question, John, because uh, it might sound a little bit like Captain Obvious when I ask this question, but um, obviously there's there's growing pressure year upon year upon year upon recruiters to actually make the right calls. And, of course, unfortunately, in the off-season, just gone, we saw uh, Ned Guy and the, and the problems at Collingwood, and then you converse that with, uh, you know, Stephen Wells down here in Geelong, who's been an absolute miracle worker. So um, it's, it's almost like for recruiters, it's, it's live by the sword, die by the sword to a certain extent, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Um, this is where it is hard. I think one of the things, and I always think of um, Richmond in 2000 and end of 2004, and Brad Ottens, I hope I've got that year right, wanted to come to Geelong, and they wouldn't take any players. They just wanted picks. And so I think they took Brett Deledio, I think it was Danny Meyer, um, Ryan Willits, Adam Patterson. And the, the, the fault what happened there was it was a poor draft. They were all players we rated. If you look at the years that Geelong built their great list were 99 and 2001. And if you have a look at those drafts, they were great drafts. So, yes, the pressure is on. But where I feel for some recruiters, whether we don't um, prepare to say, look, it's not a strong draft this year, we should probably trade out, which I think with future tr tr trading and all that that's happening now, I think that's happening now. But once upon a time, it was just, no, we're, we're going to do what Geelong did. We're going to go to the kids, like St Kilda tried after I left. But unfortunately there too, if you look at those drafts when they attacked the draft, they weren't particularly strong drafts. So number one, yes, the pressure is on. So that's part of it. The second part is where Geelong had an enormous advantage when Mark came, they kept their VFL team. If you remember even power clubs like Collingwood, Joinwood, Williamstown, Essendon and Bendigo, um, I often wonder whether a player like Corey Enright would have made it if he'd gone to one of those clubs. So Geelong had a bit of a... So you're a bit of a, a victim or a, a whatever to your development program. And we sometimes see that even now when um, when Melbourne, they're, they're doing it well now. But I think some of those early picks they had a few years ago that didn't quite work out. I'm not sure their development program mightn't have been up to scratch. So so you relied on others. It's a team thing. I know it's a cliche, but it is very much a team thing. Yeah. John, um, I'm not thinking of making a comeback, but do you have an age cutoff point? <laughs> um, you know, the James Potts-Yadley success story, we're seeing Lockie Henderson, now 30, playing his best football. When you go looking at players now, and there's more thinking outside the square and outside the draft, do you personally have an age cutoff point? Well, I originally did, and I was wrong. Um, and so it's it's changed. You're right. I think there's a fair few examples, and I think um, Wes and I were even mentioning Mickey Barlow. I don't know what age Mickey was when he when he got into it. It was about 22 or 23. Um, so when I think we're very conditioned, if and it was our own fault too, to the Tech Cup competition there for a long while because there was a lot of money put into it. I was well promoted, and I think at times we did um, ignore the senior players, um, and we're seeing that, as you said, there's well, Lockie Henderson's nearly playing the best footy of his career. Um, it'd be interesting to know if he was playing in the waffle, would he get picked up? But James Podziati is an example. So I've changed. I used to be very off. They're over 20. They're too old. And it was such a, a naive and uh, pretty stubborn view. So, so I think it has changed through the AFL too. I hope that answers your question. Speaking with recruiter of 25 years experience, John Peak, and I know that your recruiting thesis, which addresses four pillars, John, um, mentions a lot of names. I think it's quite fascinating <laughs> that you've not held back on naming names for, for good and for not so good, but some fabulous examples provided. And one of those that is a really interesting example, which shows the virtues in actually really spreading the net with regard to establishing information and background information on players is Clayton Oliver, because you had to, your observation of him is that they really had to dig deep to actually get to the truth about Clayton Oliver, didn't they? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I don't know if I mentioned in the document how when I went to Clayton at his house and knocked on the door, his first response was, oh, I forgot that you were coming. So it wasn't a great start to it. Um, yes, but it, we did a lot of work on Clayton because, as you see, he can play. But there was a few question marks on him. He had been at the Bendigo pioneers and whatever reason there he left and he and he went across to the murray bush ranges and this is where i've got to be careful i suppose where's sometimes you can talk to people yes you've got to realize the tech cup clubs it, it, it's dealing with 50 60 70 players they know they're players but sometimes you just came away from the interview and i thought i, I haven't you haven't answered my questions and so i was fortunate enough to find uh clayton's year 12 coordinator and he, I asked his permission if I could go and uh, have a chat to her, which he was okay with. And as soon as she said to me straight off, I know nothing about football, John, but you asked me questions about his commitment and all that. And uh, she knew him to a T. And I reckon everything she said would happen did and that how he would need time to um, adjust to, to life as sort of being an independent person. And so that... So I have this belief, if you ask the right question to the right person, because trying to determine what I call pillar two, the mental side, is virtually the hardest part. If you, you, you know, we can all see if they can kick and mark and do all that, and that's sometimes hard, but, you know, you can mark, oh, yeah, they're a good kick, bad kick, but whether they're going to able to withstand the commitment and everything in footy is a hard thing. And so that's, I, that's what I try to do towards the end of my career, um, really search for the person that knew them, that could, if you could answer that question, you thought, oh, gee, I, I like that answer. I don't, it sounds a bit hairy-fairy, but um, if you sort of knew what you were trying to ask for and kept digging deep till you found that person, it, there was a great benefit to that. And the other person I didn't mention was Ben McKay at North Melbourne. Um, he was the same, and it wasn't so much commitment. Um, it was just a few doubts I had about his football ability, and I found one of his junior coaches, and I asked a few questions, and I walked away thinking, yeah, this kid's going to be all right. So, yeah, it is, and it's, and it's a little bit of luck too, and that always helps. John, I want to talk a moment about Geelong, who are yep. currently in contention. Yes. Whatever that means. <laughs> now, now. And we've been in contention for a long time. Since our last premiership in 2011, we've, yeah. we've played 18 finals and won just six. And my math yes. says that's about 33%. Yes, that's good. Okay. Let's talk about the list management of that because they seem to have a range of players who, despite being tremendous contributors during the regular season, have not really carried that form into finals. When do you pull the trigger and and actually decide to, to try and throw some younger or different players into the mix to see if they will actually get you into a better position of contention? Yeah, that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, well, the best way I can answer that, I look at patterns, and if you can, you know, anyone can play a bad final, um, but if you see a pattern in a player that comes to finals that can continually sort of doesn't produce the standard you think you try to make that as quick as you can but I, I, I sort of know where you're going and I think we've had a few players on our list that I call good home and away players but you get to a final and they have struggled and I think if you look at the pattern um, sometimes you just got to make hard calls because that's how you're going to improve you're not going to improve Dangerfield you're not going to improve Mitch Duncan and Tom Hawkins. Well, we've talked about Lockie Henderson. He's a bit against the rules, isn't he? He has improved. But the way to, in my opinion, to improve your list is look at your average players and below average players. You should be able to gauge that. And they're the ones that are unfortunately always in danger of their position, I think. And, and sometimes you're just going to make hard calls. So I think Geelong have done it a little bit, um, you know, even... You will use the Josh Caddy example. I know he went to Richmond and he played in a flag and congratulations to him. But Geelong got a good young player in Parfit. They made that decision rightly or wrongly because they felt um, he just wasn't reaching the level they wanted. Maybe at Richmond he had a different role, which I think he did. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an example of it. But sometimes we can tend to be a bit too conservative on that because we know those sort of players will get us into the finals. But at the end of the day, it's about winning it. Um, that's what I believe. And uh, that's why some clubs have, have spent a long time you know, since they've done it. So the quicker the better. Uh, but look at the pattern, I reckon. I reckon if they've had a couple of finals and they haven't really produced, you've probably got a good idea. John, certainly one of the uh, the greatest uh, recruiting, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, decisions at Geelong over the years was uh, the recruiting of a young fellow by the name of Joel Selwood, who has turned into an absolute champion for our club and a fantastic captain um deserves to be a premiership captain and uh and you know hopefully he gets that the chance to do that but the question i have for you is 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 the next joel selwood out there and and do you actually have an eye on them as as potentially a a recruit for you know coming drafts well um to answer your question there will be another joel selwood there but um i can't say it's next year or this year um so with Joel, he didn't. He only played, I think, half a game in his draft year. So uh, you often have now what you call your futures um, recruiter, and I think Troy Selwood has done a lot of that for Geelong. So you earmark them round about sixteen and follow them through. Um, I remember uh, Hawthorne earmarked Luke Hodge when he was sixteen and decided when that gets to that year that they, if they could, they would trade for him. Um, that was John Turnbull. So you can identify them around about 16. Yes, there'll be another Joel Solwood. Will Geelong get him? I don't know. <laughs> um, so they're out there. Um, COVID has probably thrown a spanner in the works, I think. But yeah, there's, there's good players coming through. But the real good ones usually, if this is sort of what your question is, you can identify them around about 15 or 16, I think. You know, still side bottom. Scott Pendlebury was a bit different. It was more his draft year. So it, they do uh, mature at different stages. But um, usually clubs have a good idea 12 months out about the top end of the draft. It might change one or two. It's it's the depth of the draft is a little bit more on the draft year. If that answers, yeah, I hope that answers the question. John, uh, is... Uh the chronic injuries that can develop in some players, is that the great frustration and unknown for a recruiter? I'm, like with Geelong again, we've seen the Kyle Cockatoo go to Brisbane. He's meant to be travelling a bit better. Uh, I looked up some lists. Corey Gregson's another one who looked very promising about five years ago. He was Last I heard he was at Glenelg. There's no way of being able to tell anything like that, is it? It's just one of those things that develop. Yeah, pretty much. It's... Um well, it's, you do give them a medical, but it's like anything, uh, you're talking about the future. They can sometimes say a player is high risk. I know when I was at St Kilda, Jack Grimes was considered a medium to high risk. Um, and unfortunately, I think he would have been a good player too, that injuries got him. But then I know the story um, of one particular club, they ruled Joel Selwood out because of his knee. They said he, uh, you know, wouldn't uh, play much and there's... The recruiter says to me, and he never missed a game. <laughs> and uh, there's the famous one about Stevie Johnson. Um, when Collingwood were pretty keen on him, they did a medical of, of him. I remember Neil Baum saying, because he was at Collingwood at the time, they said, oh, he'd be lucky if he's walking at 25, let alone playing. And what age did Stevie play to? 32 or 33? So it's, look, they do do it with a bit of science, but there is also a bit of hit and miss about it. Um, we used to say as recruiters, um, that was the one get out we'd, we'd, we'd play. If they got injured, we thought all bets were off. That was a bit of bad luck. Yeah, because it's such a brutal game. Yeah. Now, uh, John, Nick Nat's come, on for, come under a bit of fire in recent times. Um, yeah. And even on our podcast, we've sort of uh, highlighted the fact that he hasn't quite played to expectation. He's, he's a player that I know you mentioned in your thesis from the point of view of being a, a relatively athletic, well, an incredibly athletic person but also a new convert to the AFL. He's just an example. I suppose the Sava Radigali is another one. You've got the Irish boys that come across that obviously are, are not growing up with our oval-shaped ball and things like that. Tell us about some of the unique challenges that some of these sorts of players that are enormously athletic actually throw up for recruiters. Yeah, well, they do. Um, that is a very good point. Um, Nick Nat was a very interesting 
uh, test case. Everyone um, put him up as number one, and I think I've said um, he's, he is the outrider. If you go by my thesis, you couldn't take him number one because um, he wasn't super footy smart. He was super athletic, competitive, like do things like jump over. They talk about Superman, um, jump over tall buildings and single band, all those sort of things. I always thought he was a bit of a high risk. Um, he has had a good career because he is elite at so many things. But I think at times you see just not being an absolute natural at the game has held him back at different times. Is that what you're alluding to mm-hmm. there, Wes? That you, even you're lucky. Like, he can take a good mark, but he's not. He's not. Um, a magnificent mark, is he? Really, it's his 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 athleticism that gets him the tap work. Um, so they are always hard to judge. I always think they're a bit of high risk. They are fantastic to the eye. That you you know you catch them <laughs> as soon as they run out in the ground because they're jumping and running like the wind. Uh, so I always have my heart in my mouth with those types because um, we could go through other drafts where it has failed, where they've taken that really magnificent athlete. That just couldn't make it. With the Irish, Dave Whedon used to have this theory that it's a little bit different because they play behind the ball, so they do learn how to read it quite well. And we've, and we've had a reasonable success rate in converting the Irish. So he used to always say, um, uh, look for the, the ones that play the sports behind the ball. Mark Blitzovs is the other one, Wes, but he did play footy till he was about 15, I think, and he was very good. And I think if we watch the game, we can see you can read the game. His kicking is probably a thing that if he played all the way through, it might be a little bit more fluent than it is. But um, so, yeah, look, it is an enormous challenge. Um, and I think over the years, I haven't got the stats on it, but I reckon we've probably made more mistakes than got it right when we've gone just for the athlete. Yeah. John, do you think we overrate winning the premiership as the only barometer of success? Um, I'm thinking of of St Kilda in the 2000s who were at rock bottom, built themselves up into contention, arguably missed a a premiership through all sorts of bad luck, the bounce of the ball. (laughs) Um, Do you think, do you take solace in the fact that uh, recruiters would take solace in the fact that they they built something that didn't quite win a premiership, but but gee, we gave it a damn good shake? Right. Answer your question. Do we put too much emphasis on winning the premiership? My short answer to that is yes. But the longer answer is if we don't, if you look at Geelong when they hadn't become such a brick around your neck, if you haven't won a premiership for so long. And for Geelong, was it 44 years? 44. St Kilda now. And I don't want to put the moz on Melbourne, but um, that, that when they get closer to that, day in the finals, it does start to be getting a brick around your neck. So the answer to your question is, yes, we do put too much emphasis on it in the short term, but somewhere along the line, your club has to win a flag. I, I think that's just the nuts and bolts of it, because otherwise, if it gets too long, it does, it sort of weighs the place down. Like it, just going, when I first went to Geelong in uh, 1998, from going from Essendon, it was just, oh, well, we win the flag every couple of years. Uh, you could see it was it was draining on people. And then to go back there at 2011, it was it was a different place because that's because you start to think you can't win it. And I even listened to your interview with James Button. Um, he said he started to think Geelong just can't win it. A regional town can't win it. So you start to get those mental things into you. You, you can't win it. Uh, so... You've got to, somewhere along the line, probably every 10 years, if you can, I reckon you've got to win the flag somewhere. You can't leave it for a number of years, otherwise it, it can pull your club down, I think. John, uh, I hope this is a question that you can answer and I don't put too much pressure on you with this. No worries. Um, we look back to last season's draft and, and Geelong put, um, you know, three first-round draft picks in a nice little package and and sent them off for uh, for Jeremy Cameron. And, and we're very thankful for Jeremy Cameron. He's turned out to be a fine 
resource for Geelong. But does that put added pressure on us now in, in this year's draft at the end of the year and next year's draft to get right back into the mix of things again, maybe cough up some senior players to get some draft picks and, and, and restart that rebuilding phase uh, again? Or, or can we sort of eke it out a little bit further until we have to start thinking about those sorts of things? Oh, first pass to your question, um, I would have done the deal to get Jeremy Cameron. He's a star. And they are so hard to find. But once again, the, the latter part of your question, I agree. I think somewhere, and I'd like to, to be soon as a supporter now, that we start getting back into the draft and get some young talent in. Because um, the if you continually top up, um, as we've seen, um, when you do fall, you can fall pretty heavily. So I'd like to see um, Geelong start getting back into the draft now. But I know at the time when you see three first-round picks for Jeremy Cameron, you sort of take your breath away a bit. But believe me, as, as long as there's no injury, he's going to be a superstar. And uh, he's a very good player. And I wish Hawk was 28 <laughs> and those two working together. But so I was fine with that. But you are right. Then somewhere you've got to pay. You know, like I know we paid for Jeremy Cameron, but I mean the other way that we've got, got to pay to get into the draft. So I'd like to, I hope that happens. Um, and I'm sure they're thinking about it, but yeah, we'll have to wait and see, I suppose. So, John, you answered before about whether the next Joel Selwood's out there. Is the next um, Tom Stewart or Tim Kelly out there as well? <laughs> yeah. Well, we were talking about senior players before, weren't we? And Tim Kelly was 22, was he? Uh, Tom Stewart, again, a senior player. Gee, um, that was a great pick by Matty Scarlett. Um, we all saw him. I thought he'd be a solid AFL player. I didn't know he was going to be that good. He's an A grader. Uh, they will be. Um, uh, if you remember Scott... Is it Scott Thompson that came from... He's not quite as good a player as Tom Stewart, but he was a pretty good player. He came from South Bowen too. Kevin Sheedy used to... If the, You were talking before about um, recruiters and coaches. Kevin used to put the pressure on that he'd always say, they're there, you should be finding them. Um, but whether you had the resources to find them. So I used to get a little bit annoyed about that. But um, he's proven right. They are there, but um, they, they mature at different ways. Um, uh, so... Uh, I don't know where they are at the moment, but they will be there somewhere. <laughs> um, but Tom Stewart, oh, oh, he, he is an unbelievable player. That was a great... Uh, Matty Scarlett told me 12, 12 months before he came into our program and I thought, oh, Scarlett's just pumping up one of his own boys. So there you go. Well, John, I wish we had more time, but this has been an absolutely uh, fascinating chat and I'm sure that all of our listeners on the Cat's Whiskers uh, has no doubt thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much for your contribution to the game. All those hours spent at the back of Craigieburn uh, and, <laughs> and, and elsewhere, um, all those hours and a great commitment to the game and uh, we uh, certainly uh, thank your contribution on the Cat's Whiskers. And thank you, Wes, and all the best with your podcast because I'm not just saying it, I have listened to it and I enjoy it. So thank you. Hello, I'm Wes Cusworth. Welcome back to the Cat's Whiskers as I'm joined by Anthony Petkovic, Mark Brunger and Mark Browning. Now, guys, let's dig a little more deeply into some of the issues in a broader AFL sense. Is there a possibility that the footy frenzy will return? Well, depending on the, the COVID situation throughout the country, we've got to play games while the sun's shining, so to speak. And uh, the footy frenzy might have to come back um, in order to get games back on track, particularly if there's a backlog of games that can't be played in Victoria. It's going to be really interesting to see how the, uh, the AFL uh, executive respond to the current situation. And, of course, that would then have an impact also on the length of games. Uh, whether you can change that mid-course, um, given the uh, the need to have uh, integrity in the competition. It's a, it's a changing scenario day by day. So mm. today was three cases, three new cases. One, they're not sure of the source. But if tomorrow there's only one or none, we don't know, or there could be 20, we could be, the Geelong Bulldogs game could be right to be played almost at, in, in a couple of weeks. It's really hard to tell, which is part of the frustration. Um, so it could go pear-shaped and be like last year or it could be fine in a couple of weeks. We just don't know. 
I, I'd just like to probably not so much comment on the on, on the um, the footy frenzy, but uh, a great opportunity for our for our Perth listeners to uh, to get along to to Optus Stadium this weekend for Dreamtime at the at the O um, with uh, the uh, the Richmond and uh, and uh, Essendon game that's usually Dreamtime at the G. It's um, a magnificent. Uh, uh, advertisement for our game and for the indigenous and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And it, it would be just so disappointing if it was a poor turnout uh, being played at Optus Stadium. So it really deserves a crowd of, of 40 or 50,000 at least there to uh, to go and soak up the atmosphere of that. Um, so Perth listeners through Sport FM, get yourselves down to uh, to Optus Stadium for dream time at the O and, um, and get behind what will be a great game. And it's a good opportunity for uh, our WA uh, listeners to actually see two good teams play. <laughs> oh, Anthony. Oh, loving to stir our Western Australian listeners. But, show them, uh, how, to, show them but, how to play the game the Victorian way. They're, um, they're actually travelling pretty well at the moment, the Baby Bombers, aren't they? Oh, the Baby Bombers. Oh, I'm just I'm loving what I'm seeing there at the moment. Uh, ben Rutten. Uh, has really got them uh, chipping along at the moment beautifully. And uh, I'm liking what I'm seeing. There's a, there's a lot of young talent that's in that side that, that just ha- is really exciting. And I'm really glad that, that now Ben Rutten's had the chance to sort of spread his wings as a coach and actually put his imprimatur on this team. Because I think whilst the, the John Worsfold situation may have served a purpose, I just felt that... that in some respects, that might have held Essendon back a little bit over the last couple of years because the lines of authority from the outside looking in seem to be very confusing. And now you've got one boss, Ben Rutten's in charge, and, and you know his team is playing exciting football. They're taking the game on. They're, they're running with enthusiasm. They're actually enjoying each other's success. And it's wonderful to see. And I reckon someone like Kevin Sheedy, who's now on the board of Essendon, must just be sitting back and, and going, my God, this is deja vu all over again for the third time. Yeah, they've got to, they've got to roll with it while they can. They're a very young side. And with that sort of a youth, um, there is a downside. It's a bit like a drug. There's a big high but often followed by a bit of a low. I wouldn't get too excited about Essendon. They're playing great footy at the minute. I wonder how long they can surf that wave. Um, but I, 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 I don't know whether it's got a long-term viability for this season, but certainly in, in coming seasons, uh, Essendon supporters have got a lot to look forward to. Yeah, I think, I think they'll make life fairly difficult for a lot of teams this year. And I think actually probably, Mark, I, I reckon they're their window opens up next year as, as a, a real finals contender. Well, we're rooting for them a little bit because like Brisbane, they play an attractive brand of football and we're kind of tired of what was, you know, we already mentioned the John Collingwood game and then the Richmond sort of heavy defence, a lot of tackling, chaos football. It seems to be more bravado about the style of the Brisbane Lions to me and, and what I've seen Essendon do. And, Earlier in the season, I saw saw Sydney play Richmond as well and and beat them by seven goals. Does that engage us more? Is it like a breath of fresh air to sort of football lovers? Yeah, that's that's the footy we want, Mark. That is absolutely the footy we we want. I remember in the mid-2000s, we had those, what I call dreadful Sydney West Coast grand finals. I know some people loved them because they were close, but the game resembled rugby. And Geelong and Bomber Thompson tore that style to pieces. And uh, I would like to see one of those uh, glamour playing sides like Brisbane or Essendon. Uh, One of those, I'd love to see them succeed to show that you can do it that way. And um, for mine, uh, Brisbane on song and even Port Adelaide on song, they've looked like the types of teams playing the footy that, that people like to watch. Well, of course, the very entertaining game between Essendon and West Coast on uh, Saturday night followed that Collingwood-Geelong game, which was pretty disappointing. It was a great contest, but it didn't fall the way of our Perth-supporting West Coast Eagles uh, flock over there. And I dare say that they must be a little bit concerned right at the moment because uh, the West Coast Eagles uh, are in real danger of maybe missing the eight if they don't pick up their form. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly, Wes. Uh, two fairly uh, important injuries from that game too with uh, for West Coast Eagles, particularly Tim Kelly, who has just been on fire 
the last few rounds for, for the West Coast Eagles. They've got a lot of big names out, but there are some just starting to ease their way back into the team. But um, I can potentially see them losing more than one game this season at, at Optus Stadium. And um, I, I don't think they're contenders myself personally. No, I, I can't see them contenders for the premiership with their with their current uh, team and their injury woes. There were a few players playing on the weekend who I weren't familiar with, um, and some big names are out. But uh, some of their more experienced players have got to offer a little bit more. They've got to dig a bit deep, and, and they've got to start tackling a bit. They've got to start, well, more than just tackling, but putting more pressure on the opposition. Uh, for quite a few weeks now, we've seen teams able to move the ball far too easily against them. Um, and uh, there's a real downside for the way they're playing if they don't have the ball in their hands. Joel might have used a get-out-of-jail-free card a little bit on Saturday with so many good players out from the midfield. And do you guys think that, and we've seen this with Richmond this year too, if you've got two or three guys, A-graders out of your midfield, does that mean that's it? You can't win the flag, the way that football's structured now? Oh. I, I think, it, Anthony, I think it depends on um, on how long-term those injuries are. If you get a few injuries through the course of the year, that's that's just nature. But there is a lot of luck involved in winning a premiership these days, and you've got to have a good run with injuries. The medical room has to be, you know, staffed fairly low for the majority of the season. So, for example, you, you take... Um, um, say Tim Kelly's injury for argument's sake. If that's if that's a season-ending injury, well then that's that's bigger than say one that might keep him out for one or two weeks. So it just depends on what type of injuries they are as to um, how much impact they have. If if say for example you know like Trent Cochin, he missed what three or four games and now he's he's back again for Richmond. So that doesn't hurt them too much. But uh, the Tom Lynch one's the one that has me worried for Richmond though because. Um, he, uh, you know, he may be out for a little bit longer than what they're saying. And it's often the type of player, and and if you lose them from too many players from one part of the ground, I think that becomes a real issue because clubs don't have the depth in their lists now that they might have done in uh, previous eras. Um, and uh, Geelong's midfield was pretty thin on the weekend. And the important thing there was that those those fringe, more fringe midfielders really stood up. Parfit and Narkle for Geelong uh, in particular have done the job two weeks in a row now. And, of course, there's this fellow that we've uh, referred to often, uh, Joel Selwood, who was having an outstanding season. And I think he's sort of in the absence of uh, Dangerfield, he's basically saying, hey, fellas, I'm the number one man around here still. Uh, and he's he's having a great year. And um, the evergreen Tom Hawkins of, you know, what would happen to Geelong without Tom? Um, it's amazing. And speaking of Patrick Dangerfield, I, I hear around the traps that, that, that he's uh, marking himself back for a, uh, a return after the bye, um, not necessarily the first game after the bye, but potentially the second. But um, that that's great news for Geelong supporters. He's actually ahead of schedule with his recovery. So uh, we might see Danger back on track uh, just after the bye. Let's not waste him uh, taking him to Port Adelaide and Adelaide. Um, no, just hold him back for for Cadinia Park. Oh, All those guys you. come back, does uh, um, Parfit and Narkel still get a game? Uh, yeah, there's still a role for those those two guys. I mean, um, there are other players around. I think that, I think though both of those boys can play other roles. There's a few guys up in the forward line who uh, aren't getting the job done at the moment. Luke Dalhouse is one. Um, and I can see Narkel and Parfit could easily slip into that particular role. Um, so, and and with your bench these days and your and your medical subs, there's always a place for for good young talent. I I I, I wouldn't push them out yet. I'd be interested in what your thoughts were on the weekend, gentlemen, uh, with the, the decision to bring Reece Stanley back into the side for the Ruck when Darcy Ford has been playing playing fantastic footy in the VFL. Surely he was worth a try throwing him in against you know, the second-last team on the ladder and just seeing what he could produce. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. I was really shocked to see Reece um, 
put back in so early, when we haven't had a look at Darcy Fort to see, has he made improvements from the previous two years? I know the standard of opposition in the VFL is not strong, but um, I was a bit surprised. But Reese didn't let us down. He played quite well up until the point that Grundy went off the ground. And then he dropped away again. It's like a lesser opponent. It's like he needs a Gorn or he needs a Grundy or he needs a Nick Natanui to bring the best out of his competitive instincts. But as soon as Grundy left the field, instead of dominating the game like he should have and could have, he just said, I'm putting the cue in the rack. I've done enough, gentlemen. See you later. Oh, gee, that was a pretty full cue rack too, I might add. <laughs> just a final... Selectors got their fingers burnt leaving... Um... Stanley out against Collingwood in the what 2019 qualifying final, so uh, they were they were very nervous about um, not having someone to combat him because that was, you know, as we know, that was crazy that night that they did. They had no yeah. not not having a ruckman in a final is is a thing, and that's that's a thing. I think Chris Scott is determined to win not just a premiership. He wants to win a premiership with Blixavs in the ruck, and he won't be satisfied. And he will not be satisfied until he does. Gentlemen, this might sound absolutely ridiculous to some, but I reckon the four of us need to introduce ourselves to match committee meetings at the footy club in the not-too-distant future. No, they've, they've made us known that we're out. They only listen to certain voices, and uh, ours is not uh, one of those voices, Mark. <laughs> now, guys, the mid-season draft is almost upon us. Uh, very interesting sort of concept. Do we see much coming out of this of a particular note, or is it just a little bit of topping up for some clubs? No, it's window dressing, it's clicks, it's clickbait on uh, AFL websites. It gets supporters in a frenzy, but these players will have absolutely no impact whatsoever. Trust me. Do you don't think we could find another Michael Barlow or something out there who could who could be drafted and turn himself into a you know, a fully listed player next year? No. Not even one or two players, Anthony. Not even no. one for a quarter, come off the bench and kick three goals. Ain't going to happen. I think that's a no, Mark. <laughs> and just finally, guys, of course, this week, our uh, friend of the program, Will Westerman, the book Merger, uh, recalling the 1996 merger between Brisbane and Fitzroy Football Club with the demise of the Lions or the Roy Boys here in Melbourne comes out this week. So that's great news for Will and something that we're all going to look forward to, no doubt. Absolutely. It's at all good bookstores and bad bookstores as well. It'll be a great read. As long as it doesn't outsell your book, Wes. No, I don't think there's any danger of uh, Gary Jr. being knocked off uh, number one mantle. <laughs> but, uh, How's the Guinness Book of Records going? Yeah, just tipping me. Um, just pushing me out of the top spot for the moment. That's it. Well, that's our program for this week. The Cat's Whiskers is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, along with being heard throughout Perth on Sport FM 91.3. On behalf of the entire team, I'm Wes Cusworth saying thanks for tuning in and we hope you can join us again next week.